Welcome to another edition of the Dogger Pass Podcast. This for UFC 285. This episode of the Dogger Pass Podcast and all episodes of the Dogger Pass Podcast are brought to you by Prize Picks. Use promo code DOP when making a new account to get a match up to $100 on your first deposit. Producer Megan on the sticks, Cody Safdick on the line. Somebody actually, uh, they sent a DM to like the, the Dogger Pass account and they asked, what does Megan on the sticks mean? It's like old TV for behind the camera. Um, the cameras are on sticks in this studio. It's something I picked up, I think, from Morenci there, Cody, when we used to work with him. I think he used to say that. Crazy Gabe. Crazy Gabe. Love Gabe. But uh, yeah, great yeah. card we got this week. Um, looking forward to it. Uh, by the way, great call on Brendan Allen. Not that you called him to win by submission, but like, I should have definitely, when, when Cody likes underdogs in spots, pay very, very close attention. I feel like I missed an opportunity by not tailing you on that one. Yeah, you know what? That one probably would have otherwise flown under the radar, only it got elevated to main event status. So I think people at the end of the night were like, oh, I, I want to lay some money down on whatever the last fight is. And so. They went with Brandon Allen, and yeah, he looked good. I, I think it's a part of him, and we mention this on every other show, pretty much every show, I should say. If you're young, 26, 27, 28 years old, like you're probably getting better. He's at a great gym. He's continuously making improvements. Andre Muniz, very one-dimensional. And that one dimension, similar to Vieira, who you saw get submitted by uh, Hernandez, Fluffy Hernandez, you know, last year, uh, yeah, just like once your gas tank's gone, that's it. Your jiu-jitsu is not as great as it as it used to be. Striking's not there. Wrestling's not there. You're not a complete mixed martial artist. One of these young lines is going to pick you off. So, yeah, last week we're just like a split decision away from hitting the PRP, right, Charles Johnson? I actually thought Ode Osborne won the fight, but it was the slightest of margins, man. 1-1 one, one going into the third. I thought Charles Johnson gave it up in the last minute or so with the takedown and like that last forward pressure, but... All the same, like so close. And then the week before, off by one fight as well. Hedged out, though. So that was good times. Um, we're knocking on the door, man. I'm not saying we're going to get a PRP on this card. I'm saying feels like the groove's back on. And uh, we're just going to let the good times roll. So as you mentioned, solid offering. We've been kind of complaining about the last two weeks. Soft cards. And the results have been there. Now we got a mega card. Mm -hmm. I'm probably going to get slaughtered. But I got you <laughs> to talk to it, to talk to me through it. So... Let's, uh, let's jump into it. I mean, these mega cards tend to be sharper. Like the lines tend to be sharper. It's like uh, somebody like you who, who does the research and, and, and has a good, good keen eye, you're able to kind of exploit some of those uh, lesser-known type kind of cards. The market, people know these people. Like if you're, any, if you're into MMA, you're aware of the vast majority of the fighters competing at UFC 285. So, uh, without further ado, let's get into the action. We got uh, John Bones Jones taking on Cyril Gone for the vacant heavyweight title of the world. John Jones, a minus 160 favorite. Cyril Gone can be had for plus 140. Cody Saftik, take it away. Yeah, this is a fight that you're going to probably wait until weigh-ins before you fully lock it in. Like, I see the arguments online. People are either really heavy on John Jones or they're really heavy on Cyril Gone, but... The realistic nature of this one is it's going to be a close fight. It should be a close fight. Both guys got merit, and you really do want to see heavyweight John Jones on the scale before you really pull the trigger on anything. Like, what's he going to come in at? 240, mid-240s range, 250s? Is he going to be jacked up? Is he going to be soft-looking? Does he going to have that look in his eye? 
been off for so long. Like there's just so many question marks. So, so how do you break down a fight like this? Right. Well, there's the narrative side of it. And then there's the stylistical nature of it. So let's talk about the narrative side of it. The narrative side of it is why would you bet John Jones in this day and age? First of all, first fight in over three years. Okay. Hadn't been particularly active before that. And look at the results, Paul, the results are not there. Alexander Gustafson completely washed. They smoked him. But Gustafson washed his career after that John Jones rematch. Terrible. Okay. The Anthony Smith fight. I'm shocked that Anthony Smith was able to go five rounds with what is apparently the GOAT. Um, not that he was overly competitive, but Jones just looks super disinterested. Beats Anthony Smith, who's probably gone on the best run post-John Jones of anybody in the last number of years. Cormier, an elite talent, kind of retired after those the, that Jones encounter. Uh, well, went to heavyweight, won the title, but that was his end at light heavyweight anyways. Thiago Santos squeaks out a split decision in him in a fight that he pretty much doesn't engage him, in a fight that Thiago Santos blew out both of his knees and somehow still convinced one of the two judges that he'd won the thing. He looks super disinterested. He sits out at bay. He does the same old John Jones stuff. For the record, Thiago, Smith, uh, Thiago Santos, post-John Jones fight, the results haven't been there for them. And then finally, Dominic Reyes' his last time out. I bet Dominic Reyes' his last time out. We talked about it on the show. I thought, you know what? John Jones looks like he's primed for the taking. Like somebody is going to beat him. It's right there for the taking. Why not Dominic Reyes? And uh, I don't know. He lost the fight. Close fight. Some people thought he won. A bunch of people thought he won. But regardless of who you thought won the fight, I think we can all agree, John Jones, oof, looked massively disinterested. Now, what the results have been for Dominic Reyes post-John Jones fight, I don't think he's won a fight. I think he's like 0-3, 0-4 since then. So uh, it's not like there's a John Jones curse. The thing is that he's fighting like not elite-level light heavyweight talent. He's fighting journeyman top 10 guys at light heavyweight, generally fights them for 15 full minutes or for 25 full minutes. Same thing with the OSP fight back in the day. Shows up disinterested. Shows up looking soft after these long layoffs. What what would cause you to believe that suddenly three years later, moving up a weight class, that this man is is suddenly going to reinvent himself? Now here's another issue, right? The best version of John Jones, 2011 John Jones, uh, high in cocaine, right? So now it's like, oh wow, he's he's clean now. He's back. He's got his game together. Is, is he, he back? Is he better without the cocaine? Because I've seen what the guy could do on the cocaine. <laughs> That's a hell of a fighter I'd like to put my money on. I seen him come back sober. Nah, not the same guy. Doesn't have that killer instinct. So uh, just how could, how could you in good conscience be like, I'm going to lay down this 160 line on three-year removed John Jones, disinterested in his last three fights, generally been competing at a low level, moving up a weight class. How, how, do, you, how do you get behind that? Cyril Gahn, meanwhile, here's a guy that should, ah, should, could, be the UFC heavyweight champion legitimately, right? Wins the first two rounds against Francis Ngannou, loses the third and fourth round against Francis Ngannou. Fifth round, he takes him down. He's on top. Just hang out on top. Lend some ground and pound. Hang out here. No, drops back for an ankle lock. Probably like one of the worst ring IQ moments you've seen in a really long time. World heavyweight title fight, fifth round. Uh, of a 2-2 fight. Drops back for an ankle lock and allows Francis Ngannou to get on top of him. No get-up game. Allows it to happen. Damn sucks. But outside of that, you've got an elite guy that can fight 25 minutes. He, uh, John Jones is known for that long-rangey striking. You know, he had that build at 205. A heavyweight, he doesn't. And furthermore, you've got Cyril Gaon, who's longer and rangier. You want to go outreach fingers? Yeah, buddy, this guy, king of outreach fingers as well. So they kind of not mirror each other, but I think a lot of John Jones' effective weapons stand up 
are going to be rendered useless in terms of going like, well, maybe he'll get back to his wrestling. Probably, I don't know. Hopefully, hopefully he gets back to his wrestling if he actually wants to win this fight. But again, he's taking on a bigger man now. He's taking on a guy that's going to be, you know, larger than what he's used to. And I, I think, I think if you're just going on the narrative part of it, Cyril Gaunt should come into this fight in good shape. He's fought legitimate heavyweights. He's got a legitimate chin. John Jones, you don't know where he's at. You still got to wait to see him on the scales. So based on that, you would say Cyril Gaunt. Based on the style clash, yeah, I would have to favor John Jones. Listen, Cyril Gaunt just got out-wrestled by Francis Ngannou, who had no knees, okay? His knees are gone. He's in his mid-30s. He's never wrestled prior. His, his, his whole style is swang and bang. And it's not even like he's a good technical striker. He's just a really strong guy that swangs and bang with very little technique. And yet suddenly the guy just transforms into Jordan Burroughs in the third, fourth, and fifth round of a fight that he's losing, right? On no knees picks up a skill, acquires a skill that he previously had not had, and then uses it to win 15 minutes, 14 minutes of a fight. The latter half of the 14 minutes of the fight. So that's extremely problematic for Cyril Gaunt. Like, nobody else has really gone in there with the game plan of take this guy down and smash him, but that's the game plan. The guy comes from a Muay Thai background. The guy was a late starter to MMA. He's fought mostly strikers. You can 100% exploit him on the ground. Now, for John Jones, well, how is he going to get him to the ground? Well, listen, at him at his best, on Kane. Takes this fight down to the ground, no problem. He's got elite wrestling. He took down Daniel Cormier. People will say, well, Cormier was 205 for that fight. Went to heavyweight later. Here's the thing. Cyril Gaunt's only a 240 heavyweight himself, so he's a small heavyweight. Whereas uh, if, if Daniel Cormier cut to 205, right, and leaned on the towel, what do you think he got into the cage the next day? Yeah, probably closer to 230. So there's no real difference between a small heavyweight and a ballooned back up dehydrated 205 or so john jones can get deep on the hip get him up against the cage take this fight to the ground once he's on top very few guys get john jones off of them he's had three years to work on his on, on his on his uh <clears throat> overall grappling i think he realized that 205 didn't really have any finishing power stand-up wise at heavyweight everybody's got a lot more uh power everyone's got a lot more danger with them so why go up a heavyweight weight class and decide I'm going to stand with these guys for 25 minutes from range like I was doing at 205. That can't be part of the game plan. He needs to bulk up, get back to his grappling, get back to his wrestling, penetrate in on Gaon, take him down, and do exactly that. In terms of knocking him out, because it's MMA and it could happen to anybody, he's got a really good chin. You can't take that away from him. Mm -hmm. And Gaon, again, not like the biggest power puncher for a big man. So if the line was 50-50, I'd take John Jones, but this minus 160, I can't really get behind. What I'm going to do ever so reluctantly is take the plus money here on Cyril Gone, but I am going to wait for weigh-ins to really see what's going on. Uh, I think Jones has a style to win. I think that to bet him coming off a three-year long layoff in his recent history, recent three-year-ago history, not good. Results aren't there. Three-year long layoff, moving up a weight class, older now. Right? Does any of this inspire confidence? No. And then just as you go to pull the trigger on Gone, he releases his own interview where he's like, yeah, I'm real lazy. It's like, ah, <laughs> he's calling himself lazy, right? Did he suddenly become an excellent wrestler and defend so he can defend? No. He just got dominated on the ground by Francis Ngannou of all people. So uh, I want to pick John Jones. I do. The minus 160 after the layoff. I just can't get to that price. Yeah, when they first announced this fight, my general kind of thought, I think they opened it up and it was like plus 165 for John Jones. I'm like, this fight seems like the type of fight where it's like whoever has a half-decent plus money next to them, if you were going to bet it, it seems like that would be the play. There's so many question marks with John Jones. Obviously, with the wrestling, 
Um, is he going to use it? He better use it because he's giving up a lot of striking technique and probably power against Cyril Gunn um, on the feet. Maybe he's made massive improvements, but it's like John Jones was never really like a potent finisher in terms of his striking. Um, it was more if he could take you down, mount you, and unleash some ferocious elbows um, in a controlled position, that's where you saw some, like, you know, absolute finishes, like, very, like, early on in his career. I don't know if that's still really there. Um, we've seen him exploited on the feet, hit on the feet. Chin's always been there for him. He better have his wrestling singlet on. At minus 160, minus 170, I see some of the markets continuing to move towards John Jones. Like, I can't bet that. Um, I'm, it's a total stay away from me. If we were just calling it picks, like, if we're making picks, I'm going to pick John Jones because at the end of the day, I love Frankie Murder. I still think that, you know, both of these guys would have had to fight Frankie Murder to be considered the best heavyweight in the world because that's the real champion. But it's a business and they're not willing to pay him. So so life moves on. But the fact that Frankie Murder on a bum knee was able to take down and gone four times not very awe-inspiring. I can kind of understand why John Jones would go off as a favorite, but with all the question marks around him, I can't pull the trigger on actually betting him at like minus 170, which is it's moving to right now. Um, John Jones is the pick to stay away from a betting perspective for me. Yeah, and- if you looked at the other three like elite heavyweights, I suppose, and it's like, oh, well, John Jones could fight Stipe Miocic. Like, I think he could beat Stipe because Miocic is not really like, a power puncher, mm-hmm. whereas Gone is not a power puncher. Francis versus Jones, that was the fight to make, man, because if Jones wants to fight for 25 minutes, it's like he's got a massive problem on his hands for 25 minutes every time this fight ends up in a, in a vertical position, right? So... Uh, with Francis, my issue is if he drops three rounds, let's say he drops the first three, would you live bet him knowing that, oh, oh maybe he's going to win the last two? No, because he's probably not going to knock Jones out in those last two. Then again, Jones' three-year-long layoff moved up to heavyweight. He could be keeled over. I don't think so. He is. That's the last thing. Well, let's move on from this fight. But <clears throat> Jones is not the GOAT, not my GOAT. But I think in anybody's discussion, he should be top three. Yeah. It's Khabib or George St. Pierre. Or had the guy not had a couple steroid tests, probably John Jones. He's in the discussion, and that means something on its own, right? So, you know, an excellent talent, but, uh, you know, everybody's time comes and goes. Although although George versus Bisbing, I took Bisbing. Paul takes George. He's like, Cody, you are an idiot. Why would you take Michael Bisbing? Paul, George hasn't fought in three-plus years. His last fight, he looked absolutely pedestrian against Johnny Hendricks who smacked him up all over the ring and caused him to retire. Bisping's way bigger than him. He's a heavy hitter. You know, he's the current middleweight champion, if you can believe that. And uh, was real wrong about that one. Paul Shaughnessy, real right. George St. Pierce smacked the shit out of him. So there's something to be said about greatness, right? And like Jones does have greatness. I tried betting against him a few times, lost every single time. So what can you do? And actually, and having, you know, for George, it was like he was exhausted with the game. So maybe for John Jones, that's a good thing for for him as well. Like having a little bit of time off, get his life in order. I mean, I'm half expecting like John Jones ran over like a pregnant lady with his his hum, his Hummer this weekend, or, or like before, like like on the way to the weigh-ins, he did something stupid. Like I, I mean, John Jones has screwed up so many times. He's given away three years of 
some of his best money-making years that these would have been right now for all of the mistakes that he's made. Cost himself a fortune, I would have to imagine, um, over the last three years of being away from the sport. But the guy's fan- like the guy's been, I mean, he's the greatest light heavyweight without a quite like it's not even remotely close, right? He is frankly undefeated. Like the Matt Hamill fight is. I mean, poor Matt Hamill got out. It's it's a stupid rule that should probably be removed, to be perfectly honest, from MMA. He's he's incredible. Maybe three years off, getting all of his, you know, his ducks in a row, maybe he'll be better than ever. It's a big ask, but he's at least taken enough time off to put, like, we always worry, we've talked about it before with, like, you know, light heavyweights that are moving up to heavyweight, and it's just like, are you just going to be putting, are you putting on muscle, or are you putting on fat? It's like he's had three years to put on, like, you know, significant size, uh, significant muscle um, for this frame. But until the weigh-ins, we won't really know exactly how he how he matches up. But, yeah, interesting enough, the biggest advantage he used to have at heavyweight or at light heavyweight was 84-inch reach. Um, he could just jab from distance, throw those long spindly legs from distance like that was a huge advantage now it's he still has the reach advantage over Cyril gone but um it's only three inch reach like advantage he's got 84 to 81 so I mean so many question mark I there's 14 fights on this card I don't feel the need to actually like rush to bet this because it's the main event um so yeah Jones is the pick for me gone is the pick for you I'm not going to be stunned either way how this plays out, but I feel like in the first five minutes of this fight, we're going to have a pretty good idea. So maybe a better live spot um, to, to really put money in, in play. All right, we got Valentina Shevchenko taking on Alexa Grasso. Valentina is a minus 700 favorite. Grasso can be had for plus 500. Cody? Yeah, so for the last, like, three, four, maybe five years. Oh, man, maybe even more. I've honestly thought that Valentina Shevchenko possibly, like, unbeatable. And I say that because here's a girl that used to fight at 135, fought Amanda Nunez twice, and both times extremely competitive. Maybe almost won one time. But uh, she was that competitive up a weight class against the Lady Goat. Can't take nothing away from Valentina Shevchenko. Now that she moves down to 125, who is going to step to this girl? The 35 and 45-pound champ? Nah, she can't make 125. Who is going to step to this girl? Nobody, just like the Leon's commercial. So, yeah, you pick her every time. Crazy odds, pick her every time. I finally have now come to the belief she's about to lose. She's about to lose. Thing is, not this Saturday, Hmm. but uh, Tatiana Suarez or Aaron Blanchfield, I think they're going to take her out. The, the 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 key here for beating Valentina Shevchenko is the wrestling. You got to out wrestle her. If you want to stand up, if you just want to strictly stand with her, you need to be an elite level striker, elite, some of the best. If you were of that caliber of striker, means your grappling is probably not that good. Because how could you have that good of striking and still be at the level of Valentina Shevchenko? That's what makes her so good. Is she's extremely well rounded. She can do it all. But she hasn't really faced one of those smothering wrestlers that would be able to take her down. She took on Jennifer Maya. She gave up a takedown in the first round. Lost the first round mm-hmm. to Jennifer Maya, a non-wrestler who basically just fell on top of her. Bad look, but not exploitable quite yet, right? Level of competition not quite there. You see in that last fight against Taylor Santos, taken down three times, uh, a lot more trouble. P- argument that she lost that fight? I don't think so, but argument certainly there. Uh, the grappling would be the area to exploit her. Now, Tatiana has mentioned she wants to fight Rose Namajunas and she wants to bounce around weight classes. That's fine. On one hand, she's got the wrestling on paper to make things difficult. 
but more so than that Blanchfield. Erin Blanchfield looked the other day like uh, she's going to be a real problem. Mm-hmm. Stand-up's obviously improving, but she's just so young. Her wrestling's solid. Her grappling's solid. Her cardio's solid. I think I think at some point she'll be the girl that's going to come out here and dethrone Shevchenko. But as far as Alexa Grosso is concerned, she doesn't have those grappling credentials. She shows like a 63% takedown defense, and that's going to be an issue because even if she comes out here and is able to box up Valentina Shevchenko from range and get her combinations going, get her hand speed going, and kind of outwork her on the scorecards, she's not going to stop the takedowns. And even if she does give the takedown up, she hasn't got enough of a get-up game, I don't think, to continuously get back to her feet and make Valentina work. So uh, Valentina can definitely stand on the feet with her if she wants, but it's going to be the able the ability to mix in the takedowns and transition of the grappling that'll ultimately win it for us. So minus 700, like, no way. But I think you chase it Valentina by decision. As much as she had that little run where she was just dead in girls, uh, again, it's kind of like lower quality, you know, Lauren Murphy's and Jessica Eyes and... I mean, she smashed Andrade, but Andrade is either going to win the fight or get finished inside the distance, it seems. Um, I, I feel like Grosso will be able to be competitive standing, give up takedowns, hold on off her back, kill time off the clock, probably goes 25, probably Valentina by decision. But minus 700 money line, can't do much with it. No. Would parlay it, wouldn't put it at the top, even though it's huge. Um, women's MMA, Pat Mayo will tell you that first and foremost, and he's not wrong. So she looks like she's ripe for the taking. I just don't think Grosso has the style to do it. Somebody will do it in the near future, though. Yeah, I I agree with pretty much everything that you just said there. Um, What I've been considering is because Grasso's really worked on that on that on the grappling. I don't know if like Valentina is going to be able to take her down and sub her. I think that we've seen big time improvements from Alexa Grasso in the grappling department. Obviously she pulled off a submission uh two fights back. Um yeah. she she definitely is getting taken down and you know that happens. Against Viviani she was taken down twice. It's in play, but I think she's worked enough on her jiu-jitsu that she's not going to get submitted. And because of how Shevchenko looked, I, I've been considering the over four and a half rounds. It's like plus 120, plus 125, or even fight goes to decision instead of like Shevchenko by decision, which is like plus 200. So it's like if you're really, really passionate about Valentina Shevchenko, I'm not going to I'm not going to uh, fault you for taking it, uh, taking it that way instead. But as a little bit of safety, I would probably lean to just taking the over, um, which you can get at plus money, which I think think seems like a pretty solid bet Valentina or Alexa Grasso outside of being subbed by Suarez has never been finished in her career she's shown that she can take shots she can she has a great chin great durability um yeah it's kind of like Valentina sub seems to be like the most likely path for any finish in this fight I see it going the full 25 so over two or four and a half rounds is like what I think is the best bet I haven't actually laid cash on it but I've been considering that and uh, Valentina will be the pick, but no way will I touch the minus 700. Uh, Shavkat Rachmanov takes on Jeff Neal. Minus 500 for Shavkat, plus 375 for Neal. Big step up in competition. I like the matchmaking. Like We're going to find out real quick here, is Shavkat the real deal? Um, wh- what do you think about this fight there, Code? Yeah, I would say he's a real deal. Now, you guys know me. I like to break things down. I never use MMA math, but like, I don't think it's that big of a step up of competition. If you look at MMA math, <clears throat> Neil Magny out grapples Jeff Neal, and uh, Shavkat Rachmanov runs circles around Neil Magny in the 
grappling department. So, you know, by process of elimination, I think Shafkat Rachmanov probably takes down Jeff Neal, gives him all types of problems. You guys know me, man. I like this kid. I like this kid a lot. I think he's the truth. I think he's extremely well-rounded. What, Where he's extremely efficient and effective everywhere. Like his striking volume, not super high, which I'd like a little higher, but that's because he's smart. thing with volume is you just throw so much out there that it allows your opponent to counter a whole bunch, right? The guys that are the best are just super precise. They don't throw stuff for the sake of throwing stuff. He's one of those guys. Extremely accurate. In the clinch, he's a problem. He's got one of those long, I'm not going to call it John Joe's type frame, one of those long, lanky frames where he just generates a lot of torque. He generates a lot of position. And uh, he's excellent in the clinch, right? Short elbow strikes, short knees, knees to the body. Once he gets you to the ground, he seems to just have a knack for finding the positions and either grabbing the submission, you know, loves to attack the neck, or uh, or basically just render you unconscious with a series of devastating blows. So I like the guy a lot, man. I think there's a really high upside for him. Jeff Neal called for this fight, so maybe he sees something in Shavkat Rachmanov that he can exploit, but nobody has been calling for this fight. And I think that's because the rest of the division is not seeing those exact same holes. Jeff Neal, known as a banger, has that big, big power, right? Him and his best uh, has an ability to knock out pretty much anybody. Knocked out Mike Perry with a head kick. And pretty much Mike Perry's only good thing about him is you could smash him in the face with a frying pan and he'll live to tell the tale. So you know how good Neal could be. In his last fight with Vincente Luque, same thing, an absolute dog fight of a war, catches him clean and knocks him out in the third round. So if you're going to jump behind an underdog, you like those underdogs that have you know, big power, a big submission game, you know, intangible cardio, or they're just going to go for 15 minutes hard or something to their game. At least Neil has that power, but I don't think he has the grappling. And here's the biggest thing about him is if you look back to say like the Steven Wonderboy Thompson fight or the Neil Magny fight is that when he's not having his own way, he gets extremely down on himself. He gets very frustrated in the Wonderboy fights, a five rounder, he walks back to his corner and he's just like, eh, like, it's over. And they're like, Neil, like, shake up, man. Like, we still got to fight this guy for a couple rounds. Like, you can win. Gives up on himself. Magni gets in bad spots. You know, he's he's getting suffocated in the ground play. Doesn't like it. Gets down on himself. Him versus Ponzinibbio. Ponzinibbio just stood in front of him and banged it out. Him versus Vincente Luque. Eh, Vincente Luque stood in front of him and banged it out. I don't think Shavkat Rachmanov makes those same mistakes. I think he just plays a really good game from the outside snipes him off when he has the opportunity, and then eventually tries to get him to the ground. The one thing I can't quite figure out is Rachmanov looks like a super potent finisher, right? He's constantly looking for the finish, whereas Jeff Neal, pretty durable guy, man. Mm-hmm. The guy the guy hasn't exactly been put away a whole lot. So I'm not questioning Rachmanov's cardio. I'm, I'm a little more worried, I guess I should say, that because the real only way I think he wins is if he catches Rachmanov and knocks him out, I would rather not fight this guy for 15 full minutes. I'd rather take him out inside the distance, and I don't know that that's going to be as easy uh, done as it is said, right? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, the pick is definitely Shavkat Rachmanov. <clears throat> he probably ends up on the top ticket, but I would like to try to get him to one stage below because there's no disrespect to Jeff Neal. I know what he's capable of. I just think uh, Rachmanov is, like I said, the truth. Yep. No, that all kind of makes sense. On prize picks, they've got uh, 27 and a half significant strikes. Um, I like the over on uh, Shavkat for that. Takedowns is lined at one and a half. I mean, yeah, Jeff Neal's very, very hard to take down. He's got 85% takedown defense. But Shavkat, I think, is a different level. I think it's going to be very, very tough to get Sh- or, uh, Neal just out of there. So one and a half. Both The overs in a lot of these things seem exploitable i don't even mind the over one and a half at minus 155 um i'm with you i think shavkat's the truth 
won't be backing Neil, but uh, I'm definitely interested to uh, to to find out here. Um, moving on, we got Matus Gamrot taking on Jalen Turner. Gamrot a minus two hundred favorite. Turner can be had for plus one seventy. This one's a really really tricky one because like. It feels like Jalen Turner is a guy who's really coming into his own. His 13-5 and five record doesn't seem all that impressive. But, like, all of a sudden, this guy just seemed to figure it out. You know, he's he's putting people away. Um, he, there's there's clips out there of, you know, him struggling with takedown defense. Gamrot, very, very good at getting the takedowns. Hasn't been great at actually holding people down and maintaining position on people, which... If you're on the feet with Turner, with giving up all that reach, I think that's going to be problematic. I'm very, very torn on this fight. Um, not the biggest Gamrot fan, but I think he's going to be able to get enough takedowns here to uh, to secure it. And I do still have questions about Turner having like you know full three round cardio, and he's going to get tested here against Gamrot in that department if he doesn't have. You know, if he's if he starts slowing down after seven and a half minutes, it's going to be big time problems for him. So I'm going to pick Gamrot, but uh, another fight that I'm, you know, very cautious about uh, this week. What What's your take here, buddy? I'm super tempted to pull the underdog trigger, man. Like I'm having this debate internally over the last few days where it's just like, I, I don't know what will happen come Saturday night, but you can see the path of victory for both guys. For Gamera, it's the wrestling. The guy is an absolute elite level grappler. It's not just like, oh yeah, I, you know, he's pretty solid. It's like, well, no man, look, he's in against Benil Dariush, one of the absolute premier grapplers in the division, bar none, whom he takes down four times, loses the fight, but all the same. Him versus Armin Sarukian. Armin Sarukian has got to be a top five guy in terms of his pure grappling, an absolute menace. He takes him down six times, has a crazy fight with him. Uh, Carlos Diego Ferreira, eh, when he's in shape anyways, right? Third degree uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt, solid guy. And again, he goes out there and puts him in a lot of bad spots, breaks the guy's rib up against the cage in the second round, and then just mauls away at him. So Gamron's not just like competing, oh, he's a good grappler. He's a great grappler. And I think that would be a big difference because... Jalen Turner's been mostly relying on his grappling to win his number of fights. And whereas we're not talking about Armin Sarukian and Neil Dariush, we're talking about J.B. Malarkey and Euros Medic, Brock Weaver and Josh Kulabau. So it's not even, how can you compare them? It's apples and oranges, Paul. It's not even comparable. In that regard, I think Gamera probably does win this fight, right? He probably goes out there, uses his wrestling, he gets the takedowns, he holds Jalen Turner down, he wins parts of rounds, um, and, and and secures himself a victory. Jalen Turner, his gift is his curse. He's six foot three with a seventy-seven inch reach. I'm not going to call it John Jones esque, but these long guys are a problem, man. It's the ideal frame for mixed martial arts. And Jalen Turner is still only twenty-seven years old. So yeah, he debuts against Vicente Luque. Terrible idea, uh, up a weight class. But since then, again, he's just young, making improvements. His grappling has gotten a lot better. His striking has gotten a lot better. But, uh, you know, he gave a takedown up to Jamie Malarkey, ended up uh, ended the first round up on his back for, like, the last minute of the first round. I think Gamrot probably takes him down, gives him those problems. The reason why he's a live underdog, two reasons. One, when you're backing an underdog, what's the path of victory? I don't like backing these underdogs. I'm like, wow, he's screwed everywhere, right? Puncher's chance, sure. Johan Linus has a puncher's chance. But he, skill-wise, his opponent has the advantage absolutely everywhere. So this is a spot where if Gamrot takes Jalen Turner down, I lose the fight. If he does not take Jalen Turner down, 
I can win this fight. Jalen Turner is long, rangy, as I mentioned, the 77-inch reach, throws a lot of volume, throws knees up the middle, lands eye-catching blows. And this is mixed martial arts judging we're talking about. So even if Gamron gets four, five, six takedowns, if he's getting takedowns and he's just holding position, he, he can still lose the fight. Turner will throw elbows off his back. Turner will land the knees standing. Turner will try to throw the head kick. He should land those big shots as opposed to getting taken down and controlled. And if he can just keep this close... These are the spots where you get screwed on split decisions all the time. And it's just like, oh, man, I can't believe the judges got it wrong. But you lose on a minus 200 ticket on Matus Gamera, even though Matus Gamera has been in a bunch of fights that were razor thin. You want to go back over the list because it's like, you know, your boy Kujvili, you know, he just he fought a bad game plan. You didn't take him down. He stood in front of him, allowed this guy that's gigantic to just tee off in spots. Lose to Guru on Kudalitz. Uh, the Diego Ferreira fight. I thought he lost the first round. It was a competitive first round before the 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 rib popped out. The Armin Sarukin fight it was a five round fight. Not like he won all five rounds. A very extremely competitive fight against a young kid. And his last time against Benil Darius, he won the first round. Then he fatigued, and then his wrestling stopped working because he was tired. And then he got beat up standing. So he probably wins. I'll probably take him. But if I do end up taking Jalen Turner this week, he'll be the PRP pick, and I'm just trying to chase one of those big underdogs I think will come through this week. Mm -hmm. But uh, Gamrot just makes things tougher on himself. That's his biggest issue. He makes things tougher on himself, and I think Jalen Turner's young, getting better a lot quicker, and going to be a problem, right? So Gamrot's got to fight smart. Hundo P. All right, next up, we got uh, Bo Nickel making his UFC, his actual UFC, after two times on Contender Series. Like we really had to run it back on Contender Series outside of selling Fight Pass subscriptions. But uh, that's for a different discussion on a different day. Bo Nickel, minus 2,000. Um, obviously, his wrestling uh, credentials are very well known. One of the greatest um, collegiate wrestlers in his weight division. Uh, Jamie Pickett can be half for plus 1,000. I mean, what, we're... everyone is picking Bo Nickel. The question, Cody... The question, if you're going to try to actually make money on this fight, is he is he going to get the sub, or do you think he tries to use his hands and, and show off that he's not a one-trick pony? Because he's been getting the sub, and he's been making it look so easy. It's a setup fight for him to shine. He's the first fight on the pay-per-view. This is a star-making moment. All the people who are John Jones uh, fans, haters, supporters that are buying this pay-per-view, well, they're going to see Joe, Bo Nickel uh, at the beginning of the pay-per-view. It's a perfect kind of spot that the UFC showcases, well, this is the guy that's kind of next coming up um, in these divisions. Um, I saw originally when they first opened it up, it was like Bo Nickel plus 300 by knockout, and I was just like, and it was like min almost minus 200 for him to win by submission. I was like, that seems a little bit wide because there's like, he may actually just show off some other skills that he's been working on. I mean, it's almost an impossible fight to bet. Um, do you have a really impassioned side in terms of the KO or the uh, or the submission? Or are you picking Jamie Pickett? Because I don't think you're picking Pickett. No, I'm kind of leaning towards the submission. I think he probably rocks him, takes him down, smashes him up a little bit, and the picket, you know, just tries to roll, for, get away from some of the elbows, gives up his neck, and <clears throat> maybe like Kyle Daukas, maybe you can slap up a Dars choke, maybe you can just grab a hold of it, uh, maybe takes his back and grabs a rear naked choke, but probably submits him. If you don't feel comfortable chasing either the KO or the submission, I think you take the under one and a half. Now, to address your point, because it's not a bad point, 
What if he wants to showcase some new skills? Well, there's two things about that. First of all, he'll showcase those new skills until Pickett lands something, and then he'll get uncomfortable and be like, oh, shit, I'm just going to take him down. Second of all, he's still only like 3-0, and right? He's still super young in his career. So uh, I work with a lot of amateurs. And, and let me tell you, right, those first few fights, um, you're anxious, right? There's like an anxiety built up. He's super talented, but he's not out there thinking to himself, you know what, I'd like to experience going to a second round. You know what, I'd like to try to use my jab today. You know what, I'm going to try my southpaw. Yes, no, he just trucks everybody, right? His, his amateur career, he trucked this David Conley in two minutes and two seconds of the guillotine. Then he beat Billy Good in 56 seconds of the knockout. Then he turns pro beating John Nolan, 33 seconds of the knockout. Then he goes on the contender series where he beat Zachary Borrego in a minute and two. And then he beats Donovan Beard in the second appearance on the contender series in 52 seconds. Nah, guys like that don't suddenly be like, I'm going to try to use my boxing from the outside. Because like they only know the one gear. They're not super comfortable. They're getting pre-fight nerves. They're a little bit anxious. They get in there and they don't have a ton of cage experience or ring time. So... Uh, eventually you'll see him decide, yeah, I'm going to use some of my boxing, just like Gregor Gillespie. Eventually the guy's going to start using some of that strike from the outside. doesn't need to rely on his wrestling as much, but for the time being, if it's not broke, don't fix it. So as much as I think if he came out and said, guys, I'm not going to shoot in the first 10 seconds. I'm just going to go out there and box with Jamie Pickett. He's not going to have a sparring session boxing match with Jamie Pickett. He's going to bum rush Jamie Pickett and throw Mm -hmm. a series of shots standing. And if Pickett eats those shots, good on him. If he doesn't, then he'll drop right down to the double leg and take him down. Um, he seems like a really smart guy, right? You don't get to the highest levels of wrestling. Well, I guess he could, right? Any great athlete could maybe not be smart. But this guy's a great athlete that seems really smart. It seems like he's pretty educated. He knows where he's at his best. And the thing with Jamie Pickett is if Jamie Pickett makes it to the third or fourth or fifth minute or even to the second round, it's going to be looked at as a loss. You are 14-1 to favorite. You are way overmatched for this guy. People are legitimately making an argument, and it's not even that bad of an argument, that this guy could be competitive against Alex Pereira. So you need to go and smash Jamie Pickett in about two minutes. Like, that's kind of the expectation Mm -hmm. here. And I think he'll do exactly that. So under one and a half for me, fight doesn't get out of the first round, Bo Nickel inside the distance, however you want to approach it from that standpoint. Yeah, you would put Bo Nickel on your top ticket all day, but it's not going to add anything unless you want to make it a three-fight top ticket. And you don't want to go three fight top tickets. Believe me, I've had bad luck in the past. Uh, but but Nickel ends up on the ticket for sure. He'll only add value once you get a couple other guys on. Yeah. I mean, under one and a half is minus 300. Fight starts yeah. round or fight doesn't start round two is like minus 250. On um, prize picks, they had uh, the fight time listed at four and a half minutes. That's like when I made the graphic earlier this afternoon that's moved down to four minutes like i mean it's it's all the entire market is like bo nickel is going to absolutely kill him which there are no guarantees in this sport sometimes you get a little bit surprised um if you're a crazy dog chaser i don't think it's completely insane to like wait until saturday and like maybe take a little sprinkle on like an over that has low probability of hitting, but some of these some of these odds are like it's there's really not much meat on the bone to do anything but uh, maybe take the other yeah, si- yeah. take the other side of the narrative that everyone thinks is going to play out because that this sport's crazy and sometimes you know Jamie Pickett survives for five minutes like is that a yeah it's one of those things that like I don't know if I'm going to actually get to it but like. 
it right. does, there's nothing and maybe it will just be super easy and he'll and he'll go out there and 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 finish in the first minute but i mean the the lines for all of these things are super super juiced that it's really tough to make any money on it anyway let's move on we've got Cody Garbrandt taking on Trevin Jones Cody Garbrandt a minus 210 favorite Trevin Jones can be had for plus 180 um i have a small little sprinkle on this one Cody and it ain't pretty Kevin took, Jones by knockout? I t- no, I took uh, Cody Garbrandt by decision plus 500. Um, Ooh, yeah. okay. I'm either going to look like I'm an absolute genius or the biggest idiot. There is no middle ground on that. Like, we know with Gar- Garbrandt, he's got, I mean, the chin is beyond gone. The guy's been wobbly legged all over the octagon multiple times at multiple divisions now. My, my, my general theory on it is that I think Trevin Jones's power is a little bit overrated. This was a jujitsu guy when he kind of first showed up. He had a couple flash knockouts early on, and then it, the volume and all of that hasn't really turned up. Maybe just maybe once Cody Garbrandt shows up and puts his wrestling singlet on, fights smart, fights, and doesn't bum rush and get into a crazy brawl. Maybe this is the time because his career is kind of on the line here. Like, this is a fight he has to win, or it's like his marketability is completely, completely, completely gone. Kai Kara France knocking him out, it was bad, but it was at a new division. And that's, you know, a guy who went on to give a decent account of himself uh, for the flyweight title. That, like, you lose to Trevin Jones, you're done. Um, I don't even, you know, I'm sure. PFL or something will, will, will come calling. But, like, in terms of being in the limelight, it would be done for him. Um, Garbrandt by decision, they're both not exactly the highest volume. Trevin Jones' volume has been very, very low. You're basically, I feel like if this fight goes to decision, Garbrandt's very, very live to win. Hopefully he mixes in the wrestling, fights smart. These are a lot of ifs, but at plus 500, I was like, you know what? <laughs> I could see it playing out that way. May have egg on my face, but willing to be wrong. What do you think? Yeah, I'm going to agree. Like, Trevin Jones is an ideal candidate for somebody that could clip him and win by knockout and cash as an underdog and ruin some of your parlay tickets this weekend. But uh, outside of that, yeah, I'm just not seeing enough volume out of him and not enough work rate. Like, it seems like these happens to a lot of guys. When you know you have this big, big power and it's that raw, straight power, they don't let their hands go because they're just waiting on that one shot. Against Timor Valiev in his debut, he got killed. That first round was a 10-8 round. He was at no point competitive against Timor Valiev till he caught him. That fight with Mario Batista, he lost the first round. And then, you know, he clipped him in the second. Mm-hmm. So very much so I could see Cody Garbrandt winning the fight until he gets clipped and gets knocked out. Because, one, Trevin Jones has a decent amount of power. But the other thing is Cody Garbrandt's chin is... Pretty much non-existent at this point. So you can make the argument that 125 was no good for him. Why he even went there in the first place, I'm not sure. Back at 135, is that going to be better for him? I don't know. I don't know, man. The track record is not quite there. He did go the distance with Rob Font for whatever that's worth, and he got hit huh, a lot in that fight. But Rob Font, like, can't bust a great. Excellent strike. World-class striker. No real knockouts on his record, so to speak. So... Uh, is Cody Garbrandt all the way gone? I don't know. But even if he's just a little bit there, still intact, I think he can win this fight. Like you said, the wrestling game still there in, for Cody Garbrandt. He was a state champion wrestler out of Ohio. 
started to mix it in in some of his recent fights. Um, unfortunately, you know, his chin just doesn't hold up long enough. But I think he could go there, go out there and take down Trevin Jones. Jones, blocked on BJJ, but not enough of a game off his back. He's not going to isolate an arm. He's not going to throw up a triangle. And he doesn't overly seem to scramble to get back up. Ronnie Barcellos takes him down twice, has seven minutes of, of top control on him. But eight minutes of the fight are standing. And in those eight minutes, he musters up 11 significant strikes. Like, he's not throwing standing. He's worried of the takedown. He had a very limited get-up game. Just didn't quite see it there for him. He's on a bit of a losing streak right now. Of course, he's got that power. But if you're not going to go out there and consistently throw your hands, the Javi Bashrat fight, same thing, just allowing Bashrat to get off first and third, right? Bashrat's leading the dance. He's landing a one-two. He, you got Jones trying to counter. And then Bashrat goes again. So as a result, he outstrikes you in every single round. He's not a fish out of water. He's super durable. Okay, that's going to be a problem for Cody Garbrandt because this guy's going to be live for 15 minutes. And he's got enough power that he's able to carry over in all three rounds that you're going to be clenching your butt cheeks for the entirety of the fight, very likely. But if you want to go based on the skill, Cody Garbrandt, better technical boxer, much better jab on him. He is faster. He's got better footwork. Uh, his wrestling game, if he gets into a bad spot, you can at least take him down, set him in guard, kill a few minutes off the clock. He's not 2017 dancing around Dominic Cruz, uh, Cody Garbrandt anymore. But again, he's got the back class. He's fought at a higher level. He's given a better account of himself. He has the sharper skill set. And this very much is a do or die situation for him. So he's going to come in as prepared as he possibly can be. But it's just a dicey proposition to be betting on the guy that has the track record of uh, taking shots that Cody Garbrandt does, right? Because he's had concussion issues dating back to like eh, five or six years, right? So is it is this something that's going to get better as he gets older and has more sparring rounds in the gym and has more KO losses in the UFC and has more of these like general wear and tear mileage? No, no, none of this is good for him. Um, but of course, if he loses this, he gets cut and you'll probably see him in four to six months, probably on a BKFC fight card. And uh, that's a risky proposition for these guys because their chin's gone and they're like, ah, I'll beat this guy who's 8-16 and 16 as a pro boxer. But it's like, no, 8-16 and 16 guys, a pro boxer is going to come out, win mailing punches, and uh, you just can't take the damage no more. So I think he wins this fight. He's got a minus P's and Q's. I will take Cody Garbrandt. Furthermore, if you hadn't told me and hadn't mentioned anything about Cody Garbrandt by decision or nothing like that, that 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 is actually what I saw as well. I don't. I think he because he knows his back's up against the wall, he can't get reckless. Mm -hmm. He can't get into a, a, a stance where it's like, oh, I'm landing on him. Go in for the kill. Remember that Rafael Sunsau fight? He actually lost the first round to a Sunsau. Is losing the second round. And then just bites down on his mouthpiece and starts chucking with him. His fight with Pedro Munoz. He's beating Pedro Munoz. Man. I bet Pedro, so don't worry. I'm really happy with the outcome. I just It's a head scratcher of you're beating him, and then you're just like swang and bang in the pocket. I think the reason he did that is because the leg kick compromised him, and he realized, shit, I'm not going to be able to fight 15 minutes on this leg. Got to get it over with now. But Jones just doesn't have those weapons. He doesn't have the leg kick. He's got the power, sure. Doesn't set it up. Doesn't get the volume, doesn't get the leg kicks, doesn't cut the cage off. He's got durability to fight for 15 minutes and 15 minutes to land that big shot. That's what he's got going for him. Not bad. Live underdog this week, no doubt about it. But I think my, uh, I just don't got the cojones to pull the trigger myself. So I will go with the favorite, Cody Garbrandt. I will say that, like, at plus 500, I'm not going to hate myself for being wrong about it, but. I think it's a good bet. You know what they say when you assume you make an ass out of you and me. And <laughs> we say that, you know, Cody's going to, well, like we've been saying that for a while. It's like, he knows he's chinny. He knows that he can't take punishment. 
And then he always goes into berserker mode. So, like, I am ready to lose. Um, It's not going to be, like, you know, it's not, like, too big of a problem. I... I kind of want to even put more on it, but like I'm hesitant because of the history that we have um, with Cody Garbrandt post the Dominic Cruz fight. It's just been all downhill. Um, Dricus Duplessis uh, takes on Derek Brunson. Duplessis is a minus 230 favorite. Brunson can be had for plus 195. Brunson's had a bit of a bit of a career resurgence here. Um, I was on him to win by submission against Darren Till, which was like I got like at 20 to 1, which was hindsight being 2020 was such an egregious line. I actually got like banned from that book after I hit that prop. They did not like me for that. Um, but the guy, the guy's got wrestling. But at the end of the day, he's getting longer in the tooth. The striking's never really been all that dangerous, and the chin issues have always kind of been there. He had a nice little run. He had a nice little first round against Jared Cannonier, but once the damage started piling on, he got finished. I kind of expect him to maybe have some success here early, be able to take Drickus down, but Drickus has shown that even though it's not, it doesn't look like, you know, technically very sound, he looks like a bit of a wild man. Guy's got power in his hands. He's got half-decent submission, or at least like a guillotine. That's kind of dangerous as well. I think eventually he either bonks him or even crazier enough, maybe even finds a submission. Probably not, probably not the submission. But I think Drickus inside the distance is the play here if you're going to go to the well. Derek Brunson's 39 years old. He's older than me. People know I'm washed. It's... it's uh, I think this is kind of like a, yeah, it's, you know, Drickus is on the way up. Brunson, I think we've seen the peak for him, and I'm expecting some L's for him down the line here. What's your thoughts? Yeah, it's crazy how, like, the, how harsh uh, MMA fans can be. You got Derek Brunson, who's got UFC losses. These are his only time tall challenger. Yul Romero, uh, former champion Robert Whitaker, former champion Anderson Silva, Perennial top three, like Jacare Souza was the top three guy for like five years, man. Never challenged for a title, but top guy. And then Israel Adesanya, former champion. And then his last fight, Jerry Cannonier, former title challenger. And yet everyone was calling him, still calls him Derek Bumson. <laughs> like he only loses to the best guys on the planet, man. Like world champions, top challengers. And uh, yet there's something about him that would cause people to to call him Bumson. He was written off. He was two and four in the UFC. It was like, he's never going to make it. And then he goes on this wild winning streak. Like that's what he's known for. It's kind of re not reinventing himself. He kind of does the same thing over and over, but you know, he's able to dig in there. Now, is that the blonde hair, right? Cause blonde Bumson, blonde Bumson way better than Derek Bumson. hundred mm percent. -hmm. The guy digs deep when he needs to, but his same flaws have always been there. And Paul, I've known you for like 13 years. We've been watching Derek Brunson fights. Never moved. 12, 11 years. He's always done the same shit. Chin up in the air, bull rush it. And we've talked about it every time we've talked about one of his fights. You know, is he going to bum rush with his chin up in the air? Because it's going to leave him susceptible to getting caught. His cardio, not all that good. But goddamn, the guy can wrestle. Wrestled collegiately, but was also a collegiate cheerleader, right? Excellent athlete. Thing is, he's 39 years old now. So what he needs to do is rely on guys that have bad cardio that are inexperienced. Those guys, he can take advantage of. So when you look at his list of wins, the late Elias Theodore, shout out to him, 
Wasn't gonna really gonna do anything against Derek Brunson's game in particular. Ian Heinish, Heinish proved just to be absolutely faulty. Cardio wasn't quite there, not re- well rounded at all. Uh, you know, I don't want to say easy win, but not something that I think you're gonna put a whole lot of emphasis on when you're looking at Brunson's record. His fight with Edmund Shabazian. Shabazian's just a kid. You didn't beat a man. You beat a bye. You beat a bye. But he takes him down and he smashes on him. That's fine. The kid was inexperienced in that element. Uh, same thing with Kevin Holland. He can't wrestle. Kevin Holland, by the way, almost knocked him out on a few occasions. The Darren Till fight. Darren Till can't wrestle. By the way, Darren Till had a couple of opportunities to knock him out. He does not look good standing at all. His cardio does not look good at all. What he does have is an ability to take you down if you cannot wrestle. Now, Dreykus' cardio, when you look at tape, yeah, it looks like it could be faulty. And his wrestling, it looks like, you know, it's just really raw more than technique. But the guy's just so strong, man. He's unbelievably strong. So here's the problem, okay? He is going to exert everything he has trying to drown you. And you're going to exert everything you have trying to keep your head above water, okay? And then when you guys are both completely gassed, it becomes a dogfight. Brunson does not thrive in those situations. No. Does not. He's got his hands low, his chin's up in the air. You know, he gets shooting desperate shots from the outside. And Dreykus, meanwhile, Dreykus thrives probably at his best when you guys are both tired and he can come forward and just land those bombs on you. Because when you're both fresh, you might get out of the way. But when you're tired, he's pretty much got you where he wants. He's an all-action, exciting guy. Brunson needs to take advantage of that and clip him coming in, intercept him coming in. But he's kind of removed from his bum rushing, knocking you out in the first round days. He's kind of settled into just trying to take you down and hold you down for the most part. So it's similar to the Jared Cannonier fight. He'd probably have some success early. He might be able to wrestle a little bit and land from the outside a little bit early. This thing's going to keep going. As it keeps going, he's going to get intercepted and caught with something. Last thing is, is that Brunson is a guy that has that wrestling shirt, but he's a freak athlete, dude. The guy's a freak athlete. That is kind of one of his biggest weapons. But at 39, you saw the Jared Cannonier fight. He's slowing down. And so when you're really, really fast, but you got your chin up in the air, you can still jump side to side. But when you start to slow down and you have your chin way up in the air, you're going to get caught. I think Dreykus catches him. So uh, Duplacy's inside the distance. All right. move. Yeah. And that inside the distance is like minus 110 in a couple spots right now. I really like that play. Um, you can get more on like the knockout, but. I think I would, yeah, he, because he has that guillotine potential, maybe it gets dirty, grimy late in the fight. I'd play it a little safer and take the inside the distance on uh, on Drickus. Um Amanda Rebus takes on Viviane Arujo, minus 125. Hebus plus 105. Arujo, we got here, buddy. I'm going to go with Vivian Arujo, actually. It's basically a pick em type fight. I get it. But uh, I, I just think that her takedown defense is probably good enough to keep the fight standing. And if she does keep the fight standing, she should be able to box her up, land some good shots. I've actually always been a fan of her. The thing is, is that you see in pretty much all of her fights, wins or losses, her cardio is uh, no good. Uh, just constantly gasses out. Her fight with Tilly to Bernardo, she's fine, I guess. But against Alexis Davis, she lost the third round against Alexis Davis. Against Jessica I, she lost the fight altogether by gassing out. To lost to Jessica I. Bad look, bad look. Montana De La Rosa wins the first two rounds easy. Cooked, gassed in the third round. Loses the third round to Montana De La Rosa. Roxanne Montefiore is a layup. Kaylin Chikagian, Chikagian danced around her, right? I can't say that she was overly tired. But just, you know, there's a couldn't catch up to her, right? Try to conserve too much. I, I don't know. 
D'Andrea Lee fight. I thought she didn't look great. It's that last fight with Alexa Grosso. I know that she lost, but it was five rounds, man. She went five rounds mm-hmm. and actually looked pretty competitive throughout. She didn't look like she was tiring out. She looked like she was building on it and getting better. She had a couple takedowns. She landed well over 100 significant strikes. That's like a heavy work rate fight for 25 minutes. And she was able to pull through. Now, she's not young by any stretch. I think she's 36 years old. So... I don't know what changed. I don't know what switched. I don't know if it was actually something changed or if it's just in my mind. But like if her cardio's, yeah, if it's good enough to fight two rounds, which is only this fight, I think she's going to be pretty decent, man. She's got 90% takedown defense in her career. So uh, when she is like those early first two rounds, watch any of her fights. Those first two rounds, she is brick wall, man. Very strong hips, very strong hips, athletic girl. As she tires, that's when she becomes susceptible. But I would think if a guy like me can see this clearly from watching tape on her, world-class coaching staffs and strength and conditioning coaches and managers and everybody, uh, they would be telling her the same thing. This is the hole in your game. We need to shore this up. You fought five rounds. You trained for five rounds. You had five-round cardio. This is a three-round fight. Train for five rounds anyways, right? Show up with some gas in the tank. I think she just stuffs the takedowns on Hebus. Now, when you look at Hebus, she had like, a soft run, Emily Whitmire, who, not me, but the kids call her Emily Shitmire, Paul, and there's a reason for that, right? Mackenzie Dern, one of the worst strikers you've ever seen, although excellent grappler, can never take that away from her. Ronda Marcos, I like, but uh, people would ha- say things about her. Paige Van Zandt, like what? So they built her up to look good, but the I don't know that the substance is necessarily there. She beat a lot of girls that were pretty. She beat a lot of girls that had uh, you know some hype that was maybe not deserved. But uh, I didn't really see it. The Marina Rodriguez fight, she wins the first round with the takedown. And everybody that fights Marina Rodriguez tends to take her down. But first round takes her down, neutralizes her, looks okay. Second round, don't get that takedown, walks into a shot and knocked out. At 115 pounds, you don't really see that a whole lot. But I think she's got some durability issues. Now, the Vernon Jandaroba fight. Did I mention Mackenzie Dern was the worst striker in the division? Fair. But if there was a second worst striker in the division, Paul, would you would it be fair to say it probably would be Vernon Jandaroba? Yes, I think it would be. And Verna actually knocks her down, scores a clean knockdown, landed some good shots. Again, I think it goes back to she has durability issues. And against Caitlin Chukagian, um, Caitlin's a world-class striker. But Caitlin's not exactly a power puncher by any stretch. So was able to play to the outside, was able to land. Hebus got some takedowns going against her. It made for a competitive fight. I thought Chikagian won. She did end up winning a split decision. On paper, losing a split, uh, a competitive split to Caitlin Chikagian is going to look really good. It's going to bolster the resume. But the fact is, is that if she runs into it, if she can't get the takedown going, I don't think she's going to win this fight standing. And I think Arroyo, with some cardio, if she's able to fix that up, is able to win at least two of these three rounds. And the one little small X factor probably won't hit, but might hit. I think she could catch Rebus. I think she could catch her clean. Like Arroyo hits fairly hard, but fights durable, durable women. And with Hebus, you see moments where it's like, uh, she doesn't get the takedown going. She's forced to stand. She's hittable. And she doesn't wear a punch particularly well. So I don't feel great about a women's MMA 50-50 fight. Very competitive. I think it will be competitive, but... Uh, I think Arroyo could win this fight standing. I think she could catch her and knock her out. If the fight does hit the ground, just got to make sure you power back up ASAP and don't kill too much time off the clock. Um, yeah. Um, 
I I'm not gonna lie. Like on on the Amanda Hebus versus Shukagian fight, I was on Shukagian by decision, and I, you know, we talk about robberies and oh my god, I can't believe I didn't get that decision. I kind of thought I got away with one there. Like I thought Rebus was gonna win that decision when it went to the scorecards. I felt very very fortunate to win my uh, my Shukagian by decision bet. I'm going to go with Hebus here. Um, extra extra time in this division. Put on a little bit of muscle. Get a little bit stronger. She's a lot younger. Um, I thought being able to get, what, like three takedowns against Shukagin, that was a good look. That's one of the best people in this division. Uh, Rougeau mm-hmm. is, what, like 35 years old. She's getting a little mm-hmm. bit longer, too. Best performance for her in her last time out against Grasso as well. So, like, it's one of those fights that I think it's, it's priced at minus 125 plus 105. I don't think I'm going to get to it from a betting perspective because I'm not going to be stunned either way. But for the purposes of the show, for the purposes of picks, I'll be picking Hebus. But uh, but yeah, not not one that I feel like I can really attack and make money over the long term um, in this type of fight. I'm not going to be stunned if it goes either way. Uh, Marc-Andre Barrio takes on Julian Marquez. We got Power Bar taking on the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis in two of the finest nicknames in the middleweight uh, roster, I would say. Uh, Power Bar is a minus 150 favorite. The Cuban Missile Crisis can be had for plus 130. What do you think about this one, Cope? Yeah, like if I can get plus money on pretty much most guys against Mark Andre Barrio, and this is no disrespect to him, but he's gonna fight at a 50-50 level. He's a 50-50 guy, right? He fights kind of to his opponent's uh, strengths and weaknesses, and uh, can be exploited. So Marquez, original flop, I see plus money on him. I'm like, he's got a chance. But then, of course, you got to go back and watch the tape. When you watch the tape on Marquez, just leaves so much to be desired. Paul, here's a guy that uh, when he first started out. I uh, booted Phil Hawes in the head on the contender series, like the first season of the contender series, knocks out Phil Hawes with a head kick. He was a legitimate prospect. He won a couple decent fights, you know? But then he, like, rips his back. He has a bunch of setbacks, uh, a lot of long layoffs due to injury, comes back from injury, fought Mackie Patolo, looked trash. Trash. First two rounds, he lost to Mackie Patolo. Third round, he ends up catching him in a submission. So on one hand, he won the fight. First fight back, he can make excuses for him, but like he just he didn't look like himself. He used to be like tough, tough, durable, in your face, move forward, raw, sure, but strong, right? The Cuban Missile Crisis, short, stocky tree stump of a man, trains in Las Vegas, some of the best guys on the planet. Um, gonna be a problem for guys. Then he then he moves to Kansas, then he falls in love with Miley Cyrus or something stupid. Who was he in love with? Was it Miley Cyrus? His whole career just starts shifting and. I don't know where his focus is at. That Mackie Patolo fight, you want to give him a pass because of the layoff. The next fight against Sam Alvey, he went in second round submission, beat Sam Alvey, took some shots in that fight early. Uh, When he was young, he had that style of in your face, you hit me, I hit you. But now that he's come back, he kind of has not fixed up any of the defensive holes in his game, I don't think. He does not move. He does not defend himself particularly well. He doesn't keep his hands up particularly well. Footwork is lackluster. Uh, comes on linear lines right forward. And so now that he's lost some of that explosiveness and that athleticism because of the injury, because of the time off, like you're, you're going to have to fight some smarter game plans, man. You can't just get by on being tougher than the other guy. It's not going to happen. And so that last fight against Gregory Rodriguez, it was, it was honestly hard to watch, man. Like 
the third knockdown, it was like, please just stop the fight, throw the towel in or something. He pretty much got hit with everything that Rodriguez threw, and uh, everything that Robocop threw landed, and everything that landed seemed to wobble him. I mean, this is a guy known for his durability. He's known for his ability to take a punch and walk through it, and I just feel like it's leaving him. The athleticism has left him. The explosiveness has left him. His durability has left him. None of these scream you know, great spots. Barrio, meanwhile, he is who Marquez used to be. He's just super tough, man. Stands in front of you, can take a hell of a shot, is willing to take a shot to give a shot. But he trains at Cl- uh, Kill Cliff FC, South Florida. Again, he trains with some of the best guys in the world. And because he's not one of the best guys in the world, you you, you get thrown in there. You get thrown in there for hard rounds. And so it's sink or swim, you know? And, and in this case... He survived, and he's kind of not reinvented himself, but saved his career. Like, he lost four straight fights to come to the UFC. Or he beat Pachota, but it got overturned. Um, but then, anyways, he beats Abu Aizatar. He beats Dolce Longambula. Not great fights. Loses to Chidi and Jaquani in 16 seconds. Terrible. Beats Jordan Wright. Loses to Anthony Hernandez. He's proven to be serviceable. A gatekeeper type. A guy that's going to go out there and try to give it as good as he gets. And I think against Marquez, it should work. I feel like if this fight plays out in the clinch, Barrio is going to work him over in the clinch. If it plays at distance, Barrio will throw more combinations. He throws his left hand and his right hand. He'll throw in some kicks. He'll move forward. Marquez, meanwhile, is going to shuffle for that one overhand shot, right? Uh, in terms of if the fight hit the ground, I think Marquez is indeed a better grappler than than uh, Marc-Andre Barrio. But taking him down is going to be a problem. The guy's got decent takedown defense. He's a big body, and he's particularly good when he's leaning off against the cage. So... Marquez is going to either gas himself trying to take him down or not be able to take him down and get worked over on the feet. In both instances, I feel like Barrio probably wins. I would actually chalk this fight up to a dog or pass situation. There's not enough dog money there on Marquez, I don't think. So I end up taking Marc-Andre Barrio. Yeah, I'm going to take Marc-Andre Barrio too. I think it really comes down to volume if this fight stays standing, which I kind of expected to. I'm not sure Marquez has enough wrestling to really consistently take it down and and utilize what I do perceive as a grappling advantage against Marc-Andre Barrio. Both guys had historically had some good durability. As we kind of move a little bit closer to this fight here, They've both been finished. It's been a little bit ugly. I wouldn't say they're either one of them are looking all that great in their careers right now. I did take, and it could get really, really greasy, but I just thought there was a lot of meat on the bone there. Um, I took uh, Fight Goes to Decision plus 225 because Barrio hasn't historically been like a power puncher. Uh, when he has got a bunch of finishes in the UFC, it's he could get a late finish here where it's like Marquez is really, really gassed out. He's got some, some like, uh, Barrio's got some submissions and stuff. Like, that's that's how he's gotten some finishes in the UFC. It's like, I don't really foresee him doing that to Marquez. So, I just thought that it's a little, it was just a little bit too wide. That market's kind of closed in a little bit. It's like plus 175 now. I expect it to probably land around, like, plus 150 fight goes to decision. Um, so I wouldn't like it as much as what I've got right now, but yeah, burial will be the pick for me. Burial by decision is how I see this fight shaking out. We got Ian Machado, Gary taking on Song Kanan minus 800 for Gary plus 550 for Song Kanan. Who you got here? Yeah, well, I mean, pretty much what you would expect. Ian Gary, they haven't given you a good price on this kid pretty much in any of his fights in the UFC, and it's not like he looks all that good in any of his fights. No. 
in the UFC. His debut against Jordan Williams, he is not looking good for the better portion of that first round. And then I, I, I couldn't tell you what Jordan Williams was thinking, but he decided to go YOLO at the 10-second clapper and got himself KO'd. So not a great performance, but he beats Jordan Williams. The next two, Darian Weeks, Gabe Green, has to settle for a couple decisions. The Weeks fight, you know, it gets taken down. It was kind of a, a slower pace fight. I didn't think he looked overly great. And then that fight with Gabe Green, it's high volume. Gabe Green lands a bunch of shots. Gabe Green lands a takedown. Gabe Green, you know, tested him in a lot of areas. I think for a young fighter in Ian Gary, because he's still only 23-24, it's good. Good experience. He's going to continuously get better. He's going to continuously add tools to his toolbox, kind of make some improvements. But I don't see any area of his game that I'm wowed. Like, they sold you a bill of goods that were Conor McGregor. They didn't exactly say he was the next Conor McGregor, but they were like, here's an undefeated, Sharp talking Irishman. Oh, he was six foot three for the weight class. He's like super long, athletic kid with excellent striking. I don't see the excellent striking. I see that he is a striker. I see that as a he moves his feet really well. He's got good speed, overall good athleticism, explosiveness. I think he could develop into something maybe decent, but I'm not seeing any reason that you would bet this guy at minus 700, minus 800. He's there for the taking. Somebody will eventually beat him. It's just, you know, matchmaking. So far, they've given him Jordan Williams cut. Darian Weeks, cut. Gabe Green, why would you ever cut that guy? He's uh, always entertaining, but he's pretty much like represents the lowest level of competitor the UFC has to offer. So that's kind of where he's at. He's, he's decisioning these guys. Against Song Kanan, they've gone and outdone themselves and got him like one level lower, and that's Song Kanan. So yeah, he's a minus 800 favorite. He, he beats them all over. Song Kanan, 32 years old, hasn't fought in two years. So right off the bat, he's coming up a two-year-long layoff. But honestly, he's uh, he, he's a clubber. He's one of these guys that's a big, strong Chinese fighter. You see it all the time. They're raw, kind of like a, you know Jingliang Li, only he's improved. But they're brutes, right? They'll stand in front of you, no footwork, flat-footed, and bomb on you with these big shots. And he's capable of doing it. Almost all of his wins are first or second round KOs, early second round KOs, or early first round KOs. In the UFC alone, he beat Bobby Nash in 15 seconds, right? He knocked out Hector Aldana in the second round. He knocked out Kalen Potter in his last win, which is 2020, 20, two minutes and 20 seconds into the first. But again, Bobby Nash cut, Hector Aldana cut, Kalen Potter cut. So is he able of just standing in front of you and catching you with something? Sure. But if you move your feet, if you have footwork, if you're actually any type of dynamic, which Ian Gary is, he's not great, but he's got more than enough to just easily evade Song Kanong's mediocre shot standing and uh, and beat him up. And then that's just talking about the striking. Song Kanong's ground game is not very good. Ian Gary's ground game, not bad. Again, there's nothing great about him, but, but also not bad. And I think that that would probably be the big deciding factor. I know people probably don't have the time to go watch back some of these fights, but I remember like it was yesterday. Song Kanong versus Derek Krantz, right? Derek Krantz owned him. Right, he took him down with, all, with three takedowns, dominated him on the ground. The fight's in China, and they end up giving it to Song Kanon. If you go to MMA decisions, a couple of people scored it for Song Kanon. Vast majority scored it for Derek Kranz. Derek Kranz is really the only guy that went out there and was like, "I'm going to take him down." And he showed like he had very suspect takedown defense. Mm-hmm. Now, has it improved over the last number of years? Yeah, maybe. I'm going to go ahead and say no because he's not training at a level that would push him to get better. He's 32 years old, meaning he's not coming back as a 28-year-old that's been off three years, two, three years. I just feel like the improvements won't be there. Ian Gary pretty much beats him wherever, and a minus 800 lines telling you exactly that. However, 
hard to put him on the top line, right? Because like I, I actually don't really like him all that much, and he's not going to add any value to the top ticket. So yeah, he's the pick. He ends up on the ticket at some point, but don't know how much of that you can do with that money line in terms of inside distance or by decision. I think that would be the way of attacking it. Gary's gone to decision in his last two, so there's definitely an idea around him that he's going. He's a decision guy. But Sankanal is a perfect opponent to maybe go out there and add to the highlight reel. So I would lean Gary by submission, but uh, greasy enough that, you know, I, I, I'm i not going to invest a whole lot on chasing a prop on this one. Gary is, uh, on prize picks, they got over 0.5 takedowns. And yeah, like you go through Sankanal's career, it's like taken down once by Callan Potter. Taken down three times by Derek Krantz. Taken down twice by Hector Aldana. These are low-level opponents. The only way that he wins yeah. fights is, like, you know, he stands and trades. And, like, Gary is going to have big, you know, big reach advantage. He's very, very long for the division. He's a big, big, big kid. I don't know if I have really seen, like, outside of his UFC debut, like, really power translating um, so far. He could definitely absolutely knock him down. But, like, I think that over... 0.5 takedowns is exploitable. If it gets to one, I feel worse about it because you would get a push on that. But I wouldn't be surprised to see him mix in the takedowns here as well as you were talking about over the course of it. Um, it seems like a setup fight. Minus 800. Like, what What are you going to do? He's a flawed fighter who's going to be making some improvements. But at minus 800, they're kind of pushing you away from uh, from doing very much with that money line. But uh, prize picks... Promo code DOP, over 0.5 takedowns. Um, I like that look. It's probably not a very popular look. Maybe he doesn't try to wrestle whatsoever. But it's like, if he, you know, he's been working in Florida with a really good group of guys. If he's trying to show some of his new skills and how he's growing as a mixed martial artist, that seems like a pretty easy total to clear over on prize picks. So... Um, that's probably how I'm going to approach it. Anyway, we've got four more fights to break down here. Let's uh, pitter-patter. Let's get at her. we got Cameron Simon uh, taking on Mana Martinez. Cameron Simon, a minus 300 favorite. Mana can be had for plus 250. Who you got? So we've talked about a couple guys in the card that if you were going to chase an underdog, sometimes it's good to have these guys with the big power. And Mana Martinez would be one of those guys. Uh, he seems to have a considerable amount of power in his hands, can throw from both sides. And with Cameron's uh, same, and he's reckless, man. Like, he's there to get hit. He's there to have a good time and party and entertain the fans. But, like, if you're, if you're willingly going to allow your opponent to punch you in the face, you better hope that they're not one of these heavy hitter guys. And my worry for him is that he's going to walk into the wrong guy. And Manny Martinez, at this kind of plus money, would be live to make it happen. Then you look at Manny Martinez and you're like, well, what would his last three fights really do to suggest that he has that big power? He did drop uh, Ronnie Lawrence twice. I guess he had some big power there. But the Brandon Davis fight and the Guido Canetti fight, man, split decision wins, tired in both of them. The Canetti fight, you could make the excuse for him that his, his uh, head coach had passed away, so it was weighing heavy on his mind. But that last fight with Brandon Davis, like, what's what's the excuse there? Um but he's like, he, he still knocked Brandon Davis down twice, man. He knocks down his opponents in most of his fights. He knocks out his opponent in most of his wins. He's dangerous in that regard. So part of me is worried that Cameron Salmon goes out there and is just going to try to win the volume game. I'm going to be, I'm going to stay in this guy's face and I'm going to continuously throw. But as we talked about earlier, right? Uh, Shavkat Rachmanov, one of the best guys in the world, right? 
What does he not do? You can't just keep throwing recklessly. You're going to get countered. Man is going to counter Saman. He's going to have opportunities to put him away. He's going to have opportunities to catch him clean. That would make him a live underdog. The reason I'm not going to go with him is I'm more of a volume-based guy. I hate just base, uh, betting a guy on it like, Hunter's chance, tons of power. Where was it against Guido Canen? Where was it against Brandon Davis? I don't care that he dropped Brandon Davis twice. Why didn't he knock him out? Mm-hmm. How come? For a big power guy, right? So then I need the volume. I need the volume because the judges are looking at who's landing more shots. And when they say big damage, oh, damage. I'll tell you what's more damaging. Getting punched in the face 100 times instead of 70 times. That's more damaging, right? So Saban is going to win those prolonged exchanges. And what I see from him is someone's going to push the pace. On the contender series against uh, Kim, again, fight goes into the second round. He had landed some 60 significant strikes, continuously stayed on him, looked good. I'm not traditionally high on these EFC Africa champions, but there's a whole new wave of them. Drake is two places uh, amongst others. That uh, I think the skill level in South Africa is definitely going up. These guys are also given the ability to go to other camps in the world and improve their skill. And I think that same is getting a lot better. That debut against Steve Koslow, I load up on this kid way more than I should have. Uh, simple reason I know Steve Koslow and I just didn't think he was going to win a fight in the UFC. So same in first round, owned, dominated. Maybe a 10-8 round. Maybe mm-hmm. a 10-8 round, he got absolutely nothing going. He landed four significant strikes in the fight. Uh, in that round, sorry. Uh, Kozlo only landed three, but all the same. Kozlo was on top the entire time, so it, it was a problem. The second round, he's getting taken down in that early portion, but he's one of these guys that's not going to quit on himself. Fights through, gets six reversals, continuously gets back up, continuously gets on top, continuously makes Kozlo work, takes Kozlo into the third round. Third round only goes four minutes and 13 seconds, and he already doubled his output from any of the previous rounds, lands like 49 significant strikes in that round, and put Steve Kozlo away with like less than 40, I think there's 47 seconds left on the clock. He puts him away. There's a guy that's going to fight for your dollar. There's a guy that has volume. It looks low on paper because he landed nothing in the first round. Look at second and the third round. It's there. He's aggressive. He's getting better. He can survive on the ground. Kozlo will beat JJ Black Belt for the record. I think there's stuff that you can like against uh, for Saman. So how does he match up with Martinez? Well, same thing. He's going to get in the pocket. He's going to try to terrorize him. He's going to try to move him around. He's going to try to work him. Martinez doesn't throw his hands enough, and Martinez doesn't seem to have the cardio to get into a dogfight and prevail in it. So I think that early, he's going to be dangerous, absolutely dangerous. The longer the fight goes, Saman takes over. If Saman gets dropped in the first round but survives, and I can get some plus money on him going into the second and third, I take the live hit on that. I take the live hit on that because he's going to continuously get better. Martinez should regress. But for that first seven and a half minutes, I, I can't fault Manda Martinez. Live underdog. The only once ho- that doesn't materialize, I think we get the win here. The only hole I will poke is that I was like counting my money, counting my tickets. You know, I think I even like tweeted it on. Uh, I was on Twitter like bragging about like how great of a play Ronnie Lawrence was. You know, I kind of figured that Mano Martinez was going to slow down. And then he knocks him down in round three, what, twice. And it was like, but fully puckered. I don't know if this uh, Mano Martinez is going to gas is completely um, a realistic uh, narrative there. But I do think that there's going to, there's a lot of improvements to be made from same, uh, same, uh, Salmon, how do how are we saying this? Either way. Uh, Cameron, Cameron should be getting the job done, but at minus three hundred, I'm just I just can't get there. Mm. Um, I wasn't too impressed against Stephen Coslow. 
um, in that matchup. He did finish him off, but yeah, round two it was it was getting a little bit greasy for him. Like he showed that he's it was young, a hell of a greasy fight. He, he's showing that he's young, that he still has a lot of potential, a lot of upside. But laying a minus three hundred against somebody who's had mul- like lots of fights in the UFC against prove or somewhat proven competition. It's just a dicey spot for me. Uh, I won't be getting to it. I'll pick Samen. Uh, moving on down, we've got Tabitha Ricci taking on Jessica Penne. Minus 325 Ricci, plus 275 for Penne. This fight was supposed to be booked. I think it was booked multiple times at this point. Finally, they're going to make it happen. I think we've broken it down multiple times. So we don't have to go too deep into the weeds here. It's like Tabitha Ricci puts in a lot of work with Mackenzie Dern. General rationale thought here is that She's going to be able to get takedowns, and when she gets takedowns, she probably won't be susceptible to Jessica Penne's submission skills on the feet. Uh, probably a little bit more power would be on the Ricci side, a little bit more length on the Penne side. Uh, Penne's a little bit longer in the tooth. We all like Tabitha Ricci. The thing about it is, like, they had, like, originally when they, had, like, set this fight up, like, there was, like, minus 175s, like, that type of number. It's, like, they've adjusted as they've made it, as they've made this fight multiple times. Now it's, like, they open it up, and they open it up at, like, minus 300. So they knew where all the action was going to come in. They've tightened up that number. It's a stay away from me, but Richie's the pick. What about you? Yeah, that's exactly it, man. We've broken it down a bunch of times, so I'm just going to straight up move on from this one. But Jessica Panay at her age, the four-year-long layoff, all this and that, the only thing she's got going for her is she's long, BGG black belt. She has a knack for finding the back. If she can take your back, if she can backpack you, she can win a round or two. If she can win two rounds, she can win a fight. If you've got jiu-jitsu, if you know how to grapple, if you've got decent takedown defense, you're going to beat her up. And Ricci has all of that. So Ricci has the striking advantage. Ricci grappling more than suffice to just take her down and stand on top of her and stay out of harm's way. Uh, I think she beats us, beats her up pretty much wherever she needs to. She's also a judo black belt. So like, again, taking her down, is going to be a problem. Um, and she's just continuously getting more comfortable in the UFC uh, really filled out her frame starting to, you know, fighting at a proper weight class. And uh, again, she's young, she's getting better. You're seeing that out of her. So Panay is usually one of these tough rugged. I'll give you three rounds to work with and get some ring time under your belt. That's about it. So, Tabitha Ricci, Tabitha Ricci by decision. We got Farid Basharat taking on Damon Blackshear. Minus 450 for Farid, plus 350 for Blackshear. What's your, what are your thoughts on this one? Yeah, honestly, it's minus 450, but I like this minus 450 more than I like some of those other bigger favorites on the card uh, for, for Basharat. Uh, no disrespect to uh, Damon Blackshear. I actually picked him for an upset over Yusuf Zalal in his debut. Didn't materialize. We got a draw out of it, but I thought he looked okay. Thing is, when you look at regional tape, UFC debut, all the same, he's live or die by the takedown. Like, he needs to get his grappling going. The striking is not suffice to keep this thing standing and, and win a fight for 15 minutes. His durability is not great. His cardio is not great. Um, if he gets you down, he's long, five foot ten for 135 pounds. He's got he's got some okay grappling. The use of Zalal fight, I don't know. I, I didn't think it was a 10-8 round, to be honest, in the third, but he got his ass kicked, won the first two, tired out. He was on short notice, so you want to give him an excuse. Um, but yeah, I, I I honestly just don't see him taking down Basharat, who's the younger brother, of course, of the other Basharat. <clears throat> they're uh, they're out of, full-time out of Las Vegas, right? But again, these are two guys from Afghanistan originally, went to London Shoot Fighters, left Europe after they, hey, Nobody here can push us anymore. 
come to Las Vegas. Jake Shields linked up with them, and Jake Shields is very much not a time waster. Uh, he wants to only train world champions. He believes both these guys can be world champions. They've trained with Aljamain Sterling. They've trained with pretty much everybody. Everyone's got really good things to say about them. Outside of that, it's that they're all very they're they're both very well rounded. They can wrestle, they can strike, they're very efficient with the with their you know movements. And I would just feel like in the gym on a day-to-day basis, he's getting better looks than Demond Blackshear. He wrestles better guys, he grapples better guys, he strikes better guys. If Blackshear can't get the fight to the ground, he's done. He has no path of victory here. If he does get the fight to the ground, I still think Basharat probably gets back up. I think Basharat still neutralizes him. I think Basharat still takes him to those deeper rounds. And then once he tires, like he did against Zalal, there will be no 10-8. It will be a TKO. So uh, Bashra, I get it, 450, no more meat on the bone. But because we're parlaying stuff together, it's like, you know, you'll get some value eventually. And uh, I, I honestly like both of the brothers. I think they're both very promising. I think the UFC knows what they have here. We've got a couple guys from Afghanistan. Not saying Afghanistan's an untapped market, but the Middle East is. So, yeah, they're going to build the shit out of these kids. And this is the perfect fight to do that, so... I think he rolls him up here. I would like to say TKO, but just like Javid, sometimes he doesn't really go for the kill quite as much as he could. Like oh, the problem lesson. with being efficient, the problem with being high uh, efficient is you you sometimes conserve a little bit. You sometimes pick your spots a little bit instead of just being reckless. So like I can see this being a decision, but I feel like he's going to inflict a lot of damage. Yeah, no, I learned my lesson last time with uh, with Basharat with uh, Javid. Basharat. I think even actually on Contender Series with... Uh, no, no. I was fading the Greek back then. I think I was on Bogoso. <laughs> but that had, nothing to, do, real good that had nothing to do with my own handicapping by any stretch yeah, of the imagination. Yeah. The, the concern I would have here is that going through um, Blackshear's career, he's never been finished. And yeah, the Basharat guys is just like... They're smart. They're trying to win the fight, but they're they don't necessarily have like, you know, knockout knockout power, lots of volume. They do have submission skills, but that seems to be Demond's best part of his game as well. I think Bashara wins and the volume shouldn't even be remotely close. Um if Farid can avoid some submission attempts from Demond, I, I think he comes away here quite handedly. Um and training with his brother, I imagine that that grappling's on point. So, I think he's fairly, pro- or maybe fair, yeah, probably fairly priced at like minus four fifty. I'm not going to get to it myself, but yeah, no finishes on the record of Demond Blackshear. It's just like I can understand why the over two and a half is is juiced to minus one minus one seventy. Uh, Farid. Basharat by decision in the prop market right now is minus 115 plus 100 plus 110 is like the best on market right now. That's not a bad look. I don't think if you're, if you're looking to improve the price tag, Uh, I'll wait for weigh-ins before I actually jump in on anything like that. But if I was going to attack it, that's how I'd go about it. And finally we've got Loic Razbot or, Radzabov taking on Esteban Rybovich, minus 275 for the short notice. Radzabov, who you can remember from uh, lots of PFL fights and stuff. Rybovich came off a contender series and um, had a first-round knockout. If you look through his Argentinian regional scene, it's a lot of first-round finishes taking on Uber drivers from Argentina on really, really, really small-level cards. My biggest question here, Cody, is like, 
I really want, like, you look at Ribovich's record, and it's just like people just get finished. People got finished very, very early in his fights. He either finishes an opponent or, um, yeah, I mean, well, he's 11-0. and 0. He finishes most of his opponents very, very quickly. They've been very, very low level. This is a massive step up in competition, hence why he's probably an underdog for the first time in his career. Loic has dragged some guys to decision in PFL. I- I'm just... It's one of those tough spots where it's like, I think there could be money to be made on the under two and a half rounds at minus 135 here. But it's like, I don't have all of the answers. I don't have all of the information because I don't know if Esteban has, like maybe he has 15 minutes cardio. Like I haven't seen it actually play out. So I'm, I've been considering laying a, a big bet on the under two and a half rounds, but it's like, I, I'm struggling to get to it because I just, I don't really know. So... Probably something I'm going to wait for for weigh-ins. Maybe if somebody seems to have a really, really tough cut, I'll finally pull the trigger. Um, I'll pick Loic because I'll pick him. But, yeah, minus 275 kind of scares me off. He did come in on short notice here uh, to fill in for this fight. Um, but, yeah, I'm more interested in the under. I'm just kind of concerned. Um, maybe Estevan has three-round cardio, and I just don't know it, and this is – you know, the under is kind of a trap type of situation. That would be my concern. Uh, what, what do you think here, bud? Honestly, it doesn't even matter if, if he has three-round cardio. He's not knocking Loic Radzvodanov out. Loic Radzvodanov mm-hmm. is like cast iron. He could gas out. I've seen him gas out a pile of times. But he'll, he'll, he'll be there until the end. So you got to make sure you don't go down two rounds to this guy first. And uh, I, I just don't see that happening. I, he not known for his cardio. Him being on short notice isn't great. If I knew that he had a full camp for this, I would be hammering Loic Radzvodanov all day. He's a longtime PFL guy, and uh, his style is, uh, well, did you see Narulo Aliyev last weekend? Like these Tajikistan guys, it's a former USSR satellite state. They fight pretty Russian, man. They are on you 100% all the time. No mercy, grind away continuously go if they're tired they don't look to their corner and say i want a way out they realize family honor on the line fight to the death and they will do exactly what needs to be done they will fight for your dollar i do appreciate that out of him he's fought world-class guys in pfl wasn't like he just fought for pfl he fought rashid magomedov who's dope he got a win over chris wade who's pretty solid you can't take that away from him but draw with islam mamadov pretty solid fought nathan schultz twice or sorry fought nathan schultz who's the former two-time million dollar man the Alex Martinez fight. So the first time he looked trash, he struggled very much. He could get the takedowns. He couldn't hold the takedowns. So Martinez kept just getting back up and putting a beating on him stand up. He looked tired. He looked sloppy. It looked like he was limited and people had figured him out. Um, he ends up losing a split decision. They rematch. I bet him, of course, or I bet Alex Martinez, of course, it's a rematch. And, and Loic, like, even though he's 31, I wouldn't say he's young. Just from fight to fight, and it's a quick turnaround time. Like, they fight four months later, and he had fought once in between, for the record, knocked out Ahmad Ali in, like, 26 seconds. The second time he fights Alex Martinez, it's like he shored up everything. He still took him down at will, but it's like there was no there was nowhere for Martinez to go. He worked him over pretty solid, looked good, and then, unfortunately, loses to Rush Manfio, who, for the record, ends up making a million dollars, right? So I, I feel like Loic fought the best guys in PFL as opposed to... I was just competing for a B-League organization. Esteban Rebix, he's not competing for a B-League organization. Hell, he's not even competing for a C-League organization. He's competing for a very much a, a very low-level, poor Argentinian regional scene that has seen him pick up some wins. And 
Uh, his takedown defense hasn't necessarily been flawless. I've seen him getting taken down a few times. I've seen him put in some bad spots. Uh, beyond that, he'll attack stuff like uh, he'll attack stuff that doesn't really work at the highest level, like 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 triangle chokes. These would be my favorite move. Right, I love triangle chokes. When was the last time you seen a guy triangle choke somebody in the UFC? Right, it just doesn't really work. And if you watch jujitsu, uh, not that it doesn't work, it just doesn't work at the highest level anymore, right? At least not consistently. When you watch jujitsu, it's all heel hooks. It's all heel hooks. But when you watch MMA, it's very few and far between heel hooks because you get punched in the face. So there's like a difference in the game. Rubovic seems to attack stuff like Kimuras and stuff that you're allowing your opponent to posture up on you and smash you. But because these guys don't know what they're doing, you can get away with it. Against Loik Radzbadanov or Radzbob, sorry, you're up Shit's Creek, man. It's not. It's not going to be a good time. I see him getting the takedowns when he wants. I see him having a lot of success stand up. I think he just smashes them. The last thing I will say is, like you said, well, is Ribovic's cardio any good? He is not. He's fought for two minutes combined in the last three years. He's had two minutes of cage time, and then to anybody saying, well, he was a low level Argentinian guy fighting a low level scene, but he went out there and he beat that that Thomas Paul on the Contender Series, and he, he knocked him out. That Thomas Paul guy's mad Ginny, man. I don't know if he needs to hear it. He's got five pro losses. All five of them are inside the first round. And then subsequently, he lost to Rubovic on the Contender Series and then went to go get knocked out again in the first round in his next fight six months later. He's not Ginny. He's not durable. Rubovic's caught him because this is MMA. Loik Radzibov, Oh, you're going to have to hit him with something miraculous, man, because the guy's going to be in your face and he's going to be a problem. So it's just a talent. It's just a talent gap, right? It's a talent job. It's hard to compete against one set of guys where you're by far the best. And when you walk into the gym every day, you are by far the best. And you've got four guys that you train with regularly and none of them can hold a candle to you. How do you jump over to that next level, right? Loik has fought tough guys and given them all a hell of a tough task. I just think he's a little too much for Ribovix. Now, because of the short notice, and because he's traditionally got terrible cardio, yeah, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put him, I wouldn't put him at the top. I wouldn't put him probably on the top two. But I will 100% admit his line is just way better. You know, he's only two. You know, in comparison, his minus 275 is twice as good, basically, as Basharat's 450. It feels a lot better than Cameron's uh, Samen's minus 300. Ian Gary minus 800. What can you even get out of that, right? Um, Bo Nickel minus 2,000. Like, again, there's just nothing there. Valtiev Shevchenko minus 700. Shotgun Rachmanov minus 500. I can't really get a whole lot out of that. Loik at least at minus 275. Doesn't sound good at first here, but uh, it's better value, I think, than a lot of the other big favorites. There are a lot of big favorites. It'll be interesting to see at CJ Saftik. Kid's been hot. I mean, I thought Charles Johnson won that decision. And I would have won like yeah. seven grand because I tailed your PRP. Um, Dog, you're telling me. I had a really good I mean, you would have won way more money than me on it. But don't, you don't have get me no wrong. idea. I bet you it really, really no small. Idea. And it would have been it would have been great. It would have been great. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, you've been hot recently. There was a lot of big, big chalk on this. It'll be very interesting to see where Cody Saftik lands. On his uh, on his PRP, fourteen fights. Um, you know, doesn't with fourteen fights, you can you can make some pretty good money, even if you're playing if you're spamming chalk. But uh, yeah, at CJ Saftik on Twitter, make sure you give him a follow so you'll see on Saturday when he drops the infamous PRP, which he's gonna drop right now. But 
maybe things can kind of change between now and then. It doesn't always stay. I, every, every once in a while, I see in your comments, people are like, I thought you liked this guy on the show. It's just like, well, we do this on a Wednesday. And then, you know, that guy missed weight or did something, you know, didn't look good on the scales. It's like sometimes picks change. They usually stay the same. Cody hit him with the PRP. Yeah, that's it, man. It was like last week. I didn't know Dante Mays or Sakai. Man, they're both bad. Like, what do you want from me? What do you want from me, man? But then, like, you wake up that morning and you're like, I can't take Dante Mays. I just can't. No. I can't. Don't know what to tell you. Can't do it. And so he loses. And people are like, great read, bro. Great read. And you're like, not not really. You know, it just, the guy's awful. Uh, this is a chalky PRP this week for sure. We're going at the top. Starting from the top, um, I guess I, I'm going to take Surreal Gone for the time being. I'm going to wait for weigh-ins, though. That's the only one in my mind that could really change. Sorry, there was one more maybe. Uh, okay, this is what we're going with. We're going with Surreal Gone, dog number one. Shafkat Rachmanov, uh, Valentin Shevchenko. Jalen Turner, dog number two. He'd be the PRP pick, though. Bo Nickel, Cody Garbrandt, Strikers to Places, Viviana Arroyo's dog number three. Marc-Andre Barrio, Ian uh, Gary, Cameron Simon, Tabitha Ricci, Fareed Basharat, and Loic Radvidanov. So going with three underdog. Three seems to be like the magic number. Like we've been close to the PRPs, but uh, again, like outside of Brandon Allen, Brandon Allen's been the biggest underdog that's won in the last two weeks. The last mm-hmm. like 25 fights is, or not 25, I think like 22 fights in the last two weeks. It's Brandon Allen. He's like plus 175. So those big dogs haven't cashed through. That's what you're trying to avoid. In terms of making the, the PRP this week, I would I would think for me myself, I really like Shafkat Rachmanov. But uh, who do you add him with? Because he's a minus five hundred favorite. So you add him with, even if you said I'm going to make a three one a three fight one, and we're going to put Valentina Shevchenko at the top and Bo Nickel at the top, you're still at minus two fifty seven. What? Say what? Okay, well let's throw on uh, Ian Gary. You're still at a minus one seventy eight. <laughs> Right? Even okay, well let's add let's add Bob Sharati. Cody likes Basharat. You're still at minus one fourteen. You got five guys, and you're not even an even money yet, man. Ooh, not good, not good. But once you add in Loic Rodsvadanov, once you add in Tabitha Ricci, once you add Drakus Duplacis, yeah, right there you're looking at a plus three eighty one. So then if you can hit uh Cody Garbrandt and you can hit uh Mark Andre Barrio, that's when you can get to your plus twelve hundred, right? So, so that's ten fights. You're gonna need a lot of bounces. Last week was only a ten fight card, right? People are, oh, you're one fight off a of PRP. Yeah, it's only ten fights, right? Like real mm-hmm. PRP, twelve fights. We gotta get twelve fights here. So th- this is this is still gonna be a dangerous, tricky enough proposition. But the favorites are big favorites for a reason. It's like they, you know, the public is on them. Matchmaking seems to be on them. The skill set seems to be on them. It's that we've talked about at least three guys on this card that have a whole lot of power and are underdogs. Somebody's going to come through. Somebody's going to shit in the apple pie. We just got to get them to the bottom of the ticket, as low to the bottom as we possibly can. Yeah, I would be, and I'm on Cody Garbrandt by decision, but like based on your strategy, not that I'm supposed to tell you what to do with your strategy, Garbrandt is not safe. 
by any stretch. Put him of low. I put him low on that ten. Yeah. I, I I said his yeah. name late. I said okay. Barrio's name late too because it's like good, good. You know what? I didn't put Arroyo because of your of your uh, advice. Again, I take everything you take in consideration. You say in consideration. I am going to keep the pick as Vivian Arroyo, but whereas at plus one hundred five, it's like that'll help juice up a ticket. Mm-hmm. Um, you make a lot of excellent points, man. And uh, Hebus could get her takedowns going. Hebus could tire her out. She could have her faulty. 35 year old cardio back in check. Like, are those the kind of fights you want to invest in? No. So no. keep those ones lower. The ones you like, you feel good in your heart, matches up with what we've said. It matches up with your other favorite capper. It matches up with what you saw in the preview show. It matches up with what you saw on Embedded. You feel good about it. Yeah, that those are your locks. Those are the stuff that you got to go up to the top with. And I feel like a lot of people are going to get caught chasing props this weekend to juice to to get better value. Mm-hmm. And uh yeah, take it from a guy that's chased a lot of props in his life. This sticky proposition, man. There's no worse feeling. No worse feeling than you get a fight right. Where you were like, oh, man, especially an underdog. Oh, man, I tell you what, Brandon Allen is going to beat Mooney's. I'm telling you, Brandon Allen's going to beat Mooney's. He's going to take him down. Well, he's obviously not going to submit him. He's a good jiu-jitsu guy. And I don't really think he's going to knock him out. But I'll tell you what, Brandon Allen's going to win a decision. And you you got it right. But Brandon Allen choked him out late in the third. And you lost your money. You made nothing from your correct prediction. There is no worse feeling. So Cody Savage doesn't chase greasy props. Uh, greasy perlets. That's 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 my jam. That's my jam. Yeah, I mean, I've got right now. I've got Cody Garbrandt by decision plus five hundred. It's a plus five hundred underdog. Like I like that. There's stuff. there's yeah. bad. There's uh, when you make those types of bets, like you're expecting to lose. Um, you're more likely definitely to lose. I just think there's some meat on the bone there. And I got another. I got Barrio versus uh, Marquez. Fight goes to decision. Um, which is super, super greasy, but I got that at plus 225 as well. So we'll see as uh, the rest of the week shakes out here. But yeah, it's MMA. It's just like, just because everything seems, you know, to be cut and dry. It's just like, we're constantly surprised week in and week out. Nobody was basically, no, I'm sure somebody out there has a ticket for Brendan Allen to get a submission victory over Andre Muniz last week. But there's not many people with that ticket. I will tell Third you that. Third round stoppage would have been a, in high insight. Everything yeah. looks better in high insight. In high insight, it was like, yeah, yeah. I don't think that Muniz is all that good. But if you were going to exploit him, it would be late. Take him out late. So again, that's the beauty of high insight. But to say straight up, I thought he was going to submit him, or you know, furthermore to say I submit him in the third round. Yeah, that's crazy. But uh, there's always people. People get it. People get crazy picks. There's never been uh, upset where is nobody got it. Someone always gets it. But in the same breath, that guy might get everything else wrong. Like I won't name him, but you and I worked with him. But it was like he he tells everybody like, "Yo, Holly Holm is gonna head kick Ronda Rousey," and it was like, oh, "Whatever, dude, shut up." And it was like, "Oh my god, dude, Holly Holm head kicked Ronda Rousey," and the guy's like a god at this point. He can't do no wrong. But then it would be like, dude, it would be everything. He'd be like, Conor McGregor's going to knock out Floyd Mayweather. And you're like, you can't honestly believe this. This, is, this can't be a real belief. But people don't remember when you get mm-hmm. uh, the, fight, the fight wrong. They remember when you get the fight right. And they remember when it's a big upset. So if you bet every card and you only bet the big upsets, people would be like, oh, dude, this guy's wrong all the time. Oh, well, he's chasing the big underdog. Chasing the big underdog. Not his fault. He had the balls to chase the big underdog. And when you do hit it, genius... Absolute genius. How could you have seen that one coming? So, you know, take it with a grain of salt when you see that shit. But uh, 
all the same. It's like, this is MMA and the big underdogs, they come through. It's that with PFL and Bellator, and there's a bunch of other organizations running. The UFC, they steam the favorites on the UFC. The underdogs are going to hit on the other promotion. You want to make money on plus money dog plays, go for that. But no one can call me a chase. Oh, he only plays chalk. He only plays chalk. No one plays bigger plus money or more plus money than me. Thing is, to get that plus money, I got to parlay a bunch of chalk. So it is what it is. We all have our betting strategies. I'm happy with mine. And all I can say is, you know, like, thanks for listening to the show. I appreciate all the support. And hopefully, our advice can help you in any small way. If you've done good the last two weeks, enjoy it because I'm going to screw you at some point. Don't know when. At some point, my picks won't be great. Hopefully not this week because I'd love to make some money in this tasty-looking pay-per-view. Ah, there's just no there's no certainties whatsoever in MMA. So there is no such thing as a sure thing. There is no free money. Um, that's just the way it is. And the, the markets have been getting considerably, considerably. Like back in the day, we used to get Khabib Nurmagomedov at like minus 300 when he was making his debut in the UFC. It's just like that doesn't happen anymore. Those minus 300s are now minus... Minus, I mean, it's like Gary right now, right? It's like Gary's minus 800 yeah. in this spot. It's like He's that's the biggest huge. difference that's happened is like they've really, really like stepped up the chalk sometimes. But yeah, if you're chasing underdogs, pre- be prepared to take a, a whole bunch of L's because that's that's kind of my style. And you have to be willing to to lose to win. And it's kind of more of a long-term game. But anyway. What I noticed, what I noticed is that they'll be like, oh, Ian Gary, you know, he's, uh, he's undefeated. He's 9-0. And he's one of Conor McGregor's boys. And he's a four-time karate champion and a black belt. And he's actually BJ Brown belt, and everyone's really high up on him. He's a minus 800 favorite. Then you tune into LFA, and it's like, that guy's 1-1 one and one as an amateur. That guy's 2-0 and oh as an amateur. He's a minus 800 favorite. Ooh. So you're telling me this guy's never accomplished or done anything, and he's a minus 800 favorite. Whereas, like, even... A guy in the UFC, it's like you have to accomplish something to be there, right? You have to be good to be there. You don't have to be good to be on a Bellator card. You don't have to be good to be on a PFL card, right? So they're going to shit in the apple pie. They're going to lose. They're going to lose because they haven't been to that level. Here, it's like, oh, well, maybe this kid will succumb to the pressure. And it's Saman. He's won an EFC Africa title. He's competed on Contender Series, one in front of Dana White. He had a comeback win in the UFC already. Like, he's pretty good, right? Mm-hmm. This guy's going to blow it for you, maybe. But he's, he's proven something. Low-level regionals, those guys are prime for the taking. They're not upset. BKFC, you've never seen more upsets in your life than that. Plus, 600 favorites hit. At least two will hit on every single card. It's ridiculous. But they're just so low-level. These guys are all awful. Bar brawler number one's fighting. Ball brawler number two. It's a 50-50 fight every time. Yeah, but the one guy's 2-0 and and the other guy's 0-5. So let's just make that guy a 10-1 favorite. Makes no sense. You got to avoid those spots. This week, we got Bo Nickel, huge favorite. I feel good about it. Ian Gary is a big favorite. Don't feel as good about it. The rest of them, you you understand where the market's coming from. You agree, but yeah, we're gonna need we're gonna need at least six, eight, ten fight, uh, ten guys to come in to make this a solid weekend. Other than that, it might be a break even or a just a quick little double up. We are going to need to get out of here because that is it for us this week. Hope you enjoyed the show. For producer Megan and Cody Safdig, I'm Paul Shaughnessy saying goodbye and good luck. Oh! <laughs>